Okay, so if your Bible hasn't been trained yet on 1 Corinthians, go back to Joshua, where hopefully it still falls open to easily enough. The pastor I was having lunch with, we're going to be in Joshua 12, it would be your, your starting place. Uh, the pastor I was having lunch with today, uh, Sam Storms, who pastors Bridgeway Church up in North Oklahoma City and was uh, president of a theological society for the, for the last year, he, I was telling him that I had preached through Joshua and I wasn't sure what I was going to do when I got to Joshua 12, so I decided to jump to 1 Corinthians on Sunday mornings and finish Joshua. And he said, well, when I got to Joshua 12, I just skipped to the end of the book in the sermon series on Sunday morning. And so he's like, don't, don't worry about it. Uh, when I was looking at Joshua originally for our church on Sunday morning, and I knew when we got around chapter 12, it was about... Ten chapters of a whole bunch of names and, and places, and so not really knowing how to handle that, but seeing the emphasis on distribution of the land, and the word in Joshua, we'll, we'll talk about this on Sunday morning, but the word in Joshua for distribution of the land or giving the land as an inherit, inheritance, there's a relationship there to the distribution of God's gifts to the New Testament people, to the New Testament church, and so that's the reason we didn't randomly jump from Joshua to 1 Corinthians. There, there really is a theological tie-in, but I also knew the back half of Joshua was going to be tough on Sunday morning. So on Wednesday nights, beginning now and running up through April or so, we're going to finish out Joshua, and we're going to run into Judges for a while. Uh, Judges is also repetitive in the sense of the people screw up, they're really sorry, they ask for forgiveness, they screw up again. Sounds like our lives every Every day, every week. Um, and so Judges goes through this purposeful cycle of what it looks like to experience God's forgiveness, how we repent, we rededicate to him. Uh, so we'll, that's, that's the game plan. That's where, where we're going. Let's start tonight. And, and there was a half sheet of the paper on the back table. Uh, if you didn't get one of those, feel free to get up. It's, it's no distraction. Go get one of those if you would, if you would like that. Okay, Joshua 12, starting in verse 1. Now these are the kings of the land whom the people of Israel defeated and took possession of their land beyond the Jordan, toward the sunrise, from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon, with all the Arabah eastward. Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon and ruled from Arwer, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and from the middle of the valley as far as the river Jabbok, the boundary of the Ammonites, that is, half of Gilead, and the Arabah to the Sea of Chinneroth eastward, and in the direction of Bet Jeshemah to the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, southward to the foot of the slopes of Pisgah. And Og, king of Bashan, one of the remnant of the Rephaim, who lived at Ashtarot and at Edrai, and ruled over Mount Hermon and Salakai, and all Bashan to the boundary of the Geshurites and the Machathites, and over half of Gilead to the boundary of Sihon, king of Heshbon. Verse 6. Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the people of Israel defeated them. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave their land for a possession to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Now, so much of what we're going to run into here are people names and place names that we really don't know what they're supposed to sound like, but as long as you sound confident, it, it works out. Uh, you don't really know if you did it correctly or not. So 
I don't know how many of you use the YouVersion Bible app. I love the YouVersion uh, Bible app, but it has the audio feature. And so if I fall behind in my Bible reading, if I'm driving someplace, you just hit that audio version. You can listen to, uh, listen to Scripture. And, uh, man, what's that? Max McLean, is that the guy that reads for YouVersion? Uh, he just sounds so incredible when, when he reads these Old Testament place names. And, and I don't when I'm trying to, trying to do it like that. When we think about boundaries, when we think about boundaries, here's what, what my mind uh, went to. The famous Red River Bridge War. You all know the story, right? Um, so in 1931, there was the toll bridge going over the Red River, uh, run by the Red River Bridge Company. But Oklahoma and Texas had gotten together with an agreement to begin opening some free roads going across uh, the Red River. The Red River Bridge Company, the private company that ran the toll road over the Red River at Denison, they got a judge in Houston to place an injunction against the new public roads that were going to be open, the new public bridges, so they couldn't, couldn't be used. Well, famously, on the Texas side, as you guys know the story, they set up a barricade, uh, so Governor Sterling in Texas set up a barricade so that nobody could go south into Texas. Governor Alfalfa Bill, at the time, for, for Oklahoma, uh, said, we have bulldozers, um, and we have ways to, to handle that, and so famously sent the bulldozers across and destroyed the barricade on, on the south side. Governor Sterling from Texas sends the Texas Rangers up to handle the situation, at which point Governor Alfalfa Bill takes his pistol um, and several helpers from the state of Oklahoma and goes south across the Red River to, to deal with the situation, knowing that with the Louisiana Purchase of 1803, Oklahoma owned the land to the high water mark on the south side of the Red River and therefore had control over what happened um, at that situation. Ultimately, the judge in Houston relinquishes the injunction. They finally get the public road open on Labor Day 1931. And in fact, that road I was reading today, that road remained operable until 1995 when they finally replaced that bridge there at, um, just northwest of, of Denison. But we know a thing or two about boundaries <laughs> in Oklahoma. Uh, when we would go back and forth from New Orleans uh, up here to visit family, every time we crossed the Red River, we trained the kids to sing the Oklahoma song. Uh, so that they were ingrained to know their uh, to know their roots. That as we were coming across the the river there on the unless the kids were sleeping in the car, we would uh, we would sing the uh, sing the Oklahoma song. So when you see these boundaries, here's the point I'm trying to get at with that story illustration. When we read these place names here, as we go through the book of Joshua, just admittedly they don't mean a whole lot to us. But when it's your land, <laughs> when it's your property. Uh, when the neighbor next to you mows poorly across the property line into your area, it really does matter where the property line is drawn. It really does matter where the land exists. And so one of the things we have to think about as we go through here is boundaries do matter to people who live there. Um, a couple of notes on the, on the front there. How do you handle the boring sections of Scripture? So I was joking with that preacher at lunch about skipping this section Anybody doing a read the Bible in a year plan this year? Is anybody, in, yeah, doing that? 
you just always feel so confident, you know, going through Genesis, and Exodus is pretty good, and you're barely hanging on Leviticus, numbers, it really starts to, you know, fall, you just get these list after list of, of people, and, and so how do we handle that? A couple of things. First, the Bible was written for us, but not to us, um, and this is kind of what we were getting to with that illustration. It, it's hard to appreciate the circumstances of the original audience. God's word is God's true and perfect word to all of his people. So we can say that the scripture was written for us. God knew when the scripture was given that was given for all of his people. It wasn't written directly to us, though. And so the reason we struggle with these boring situations is it wasn't our land. (laughs) You know, it wasn't the, we didn't ever face down the enemy king that was defeated. And so unless you put yourself back in these situations, it's hard to really appreciate what it meant for the people to receive this inheritance of, of land. And so when you read scripture, always remember the Bible was written for you, but when it's hard to understand, it's because it wasn't written to you. You weren't in that situation receiving it with the original audience. Second, always remember 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training, and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That reality applies to all of Scripture, uh, not just the exciting sections. There is a part to this section of Joshua that we need to learn from, that it's useful for us, it's profitable for us. I like this Matthew Henry quote. Uh, we weren't allowed to use Matthew, Matthew Henry in college or seminary papers. Uh, he was kind of in the John MacArthur realm of great devotional commentary, didn't work as a research commentary. But Matthew Henry has some really good uh, Really good things to say on on Scripture. Therefore, we are not to skip over these chapters of hard names as useless and not to be regarded. Where God has a mouth to speak and a hand to write, we should find an ear to hear and an eye to read, and God give us a heart to profit. It's a good word. So that's what what we're going to try to do tonight. What do we learn from Joshua 12 and 13? The first thing we learn is we're reminded of God's faithfulness to his people. So here's the way uh, the book of Joshua is is set up. The end of Joshua 11 is meant to summarize Joshua 1 through 11. It's meant to summarize the first half of, of the book. Then in chapter 12, chapter 12 is an intentional transition chapter in the book of Joshua. It's kind of that hinge. The very end of 11 and 12 is meant to be the hinge where you see a full transition from Moses was leading the people, Joshua was leading the people, now the people are finally able to take the land. The reason chapter 12 is laid out the way it is is verses 1 through 7 deal with the kings that Moses defeated. These are the kings that were located on the eastern side of the Jordan River. So draw in your mind that north-south Jordan River that runs from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. As the people, as Moses was leading the people, he leads them up the east side of the Jordan River. And in that process, he defeats several kings. Two of those kings are mentioned here. And these are really the kings that go back to over and over again in the Old Testament. Sihon. S-I-H-O-N, and Og, or I assume it's Og, not Og, Og, O-G. 
interesting thing about this is you see Sihon and Og mentioned several times in, in the New Testament or in the Old Testament. Go back to Numbers chapter 21 just, just for a second. Numbers chapter 21, starting actually in verse 21. So it's Numbers 21, 21 is what we're looking at. Numbers 21 is going to give us the story of Sihon and Og being defeated. The book of Deuteronomy is Moses' sermon as he kind of looks back over all of God's guidance for the people. And so this story is repeated again in Deuteronomy chapter 2. Then it's picked up again in the book of Joshua and repeated. You get the feeling that this was a really big deal for for the people of of Israel. It was kind of the last barrier before they were coming into the into the promised land. So Numbers 21:21. Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, "Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into field or vineyard. We will not drink the water of a well. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory." But Sihon would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. He gathered all his people together and went out against Israel to the wilderness and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. And Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, as far as to the Ammonites, for the border of the Ammonites was strong. And Israel took all these cities, and Israel settled in the cities of the Amorites in Heshbon and in all its villages. Then skip down to verse 31. This is, this is Deuteronomy, no, sorry, this is Numbers 21, verse 31. Thus Israel lived in the land of the Amorites, and Moses sent out to spy out Jazer, and they captured its villages and dispossessed the Amorites who were there. Then they turned and went up by the way of Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against them, he and all his people, to battle at Edrei. But the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand, and all his people and his land. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So they defeated him and his sons and all his people until he had no survivor left, and they possessed his land. So what you have, you can go back to Joshua 12 at this point. What, what you have in this situation is on the east side of the Jordan River, you have the memory of Moses leading the people to victory before they turn west and actually go into the promised land. Why is this such a big deal? One of the reasons this is such a big deal is two and a half of the tribes of Israel will receive their inheritance on the east side of the Jordan River. We're going to find out later in Joshua that those two and a half tribes at time doubt their standing among the people, that sometimes they're almost relegated to a, to a lower class in, in some sense. And there's, so there's this difficulty of, is our land really worth as much? Part of what Joshua is doing here by retelling this story is telling them, you are just as much a part of the people of God as the people who live on the west side of the Jordan River because Moses fought those battles. He was the one leading you through that. Then Joshua led you through the battles on the west side, and it's meant to be a, a, a picture of unity in the people. And so God's faithfulness to his people is that whatever provision he has given his people, whatever allotment in life, whatever gifting he has given them, they are unified. They're of the same value. Why does this matter? On Sunday mornings, we're getting into 1 Corinthians. We're starting to talk about the body of Christ. 
we're starting to talk about the distribution of gifts that God gives his people. If we're not careful, whether we realize it or not, in the church, we elevate certain gifts, certain areas, certain people above other gifts and people. Paul's very clear in 1 Corinthians 12 that that's not how the church is supposed to operate. Uh, You have the picture in James. The wealthy person comes in. Do they get to sit at the good seat of the table? No, God doesn't work that way. No matter how he has gifted his people, we are unified because that is a victory and that is a gift that we didn't gain on our own. So what we have to be careful of in the church is this idea of, well, that person, they're at this level, but, you know, little me, this is all I have to offer. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way in the picture of God's people in the Old Testament, and it sure doesn't work that way in the way that God has gifted his church in, in the New Testament. And so we're constantly battled to say every one of us, this is the old idea that the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, and that every one of God's gifts is good to his people, that he has, he has gifted them. And so we're going to talk a lot more about that on Sunday morning. But I want you to see the Old Testament foundation for this and the way that God lays out the land for, for the people. So you see that unity of Moses and Joshua in chapter 12. You see that there are victories happening on the east and the west sides of, of the Jordan. Look at verse 7 in Joshua 12. Let's keep, keep moving here. Joshua 12, verse 7. These are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the people of Israel defeated on the west side of the Jordan, from Baal, God, in the valley of Lebanon, to Mount Halak that rises towards Seir. And Joshua gave their land to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their allotments. In the hill country, in the lowlands, in the Arabah, in the slopes, in the wilderness, and in the Negev, the land of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Verse 9, the king of Jericho, one. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, one. The king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one. The king of Jarmuth, one. The king of Lachish, one. The king of Eglon, one. The king of Gezer, one. The king of Debir, one. The king of Geder, one. The king of Hormah, one. The king of Arad, one. The king of Libna, one. The king of Ajalam, one. The king of Makedah, one. The king of Bethel, one. The king of Tapua, I guess. That didn't sound good. Uh, Tapua, one. The king of Hefer, one. The king of Aphek, one. The king of Lasharon, one. The king of Madon, one. The king of Hazar, one. The king of Shimron, Meron, one. The king of Akshaf, one. The king of Tanakh, one. The king of Megiddo, one. The king of Kadesh, one. The king of Jachniam and Carmel, one. The king of Dor and Naphtoth Dor, one. The king of Goim and Galilee, one. The king of Tirzah, one. In all, 31 kings. So, yeah, oh yeah, Ooh, hold the applause. That'll be on the internet forever, so uh, hold your applause on that. There's a question in here. Why in the world did it not just skip to verse 24? In all, 31 kings. Why would every one of these be listed? There, there's a couple of, couple of reasons. The first is because what happens here is the fulfillment of, of the promise that God has been making to his people since the time of Abraham. So go back to Genesis 12 uh, for just a second. The big question we're trying to answer here is why in the world were all those, those names being given there? 
and, and the core of it is because it shows God's faithfulness to his, to his promises. Uh, so back in Genesis chapter 12, let's just start in verse 4, uh, Genesis 12, 4. Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham, or Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. So you're seeing these place names that start to feel familiar from, from Joshua. Go over to Genesis 15 where God reestablishes the covenant with, with Abram. Uh, go to verse 12. So Genesis 15, 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So that's obviously reflecting the uh, time of slavery in, in Egypt. Verse 15, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. What had been promised to Abram is finally being fulfilled in Joshua 12. God is being perfectly faithful to his promises to his people. If you don't think this is such a big deal for the people, look over in Psalm chapter 135. What God did for his, let me say that again. What God promised to his people in Genesis, what he began to fulfill for his people in Moses, what he began to carry out through Joshua is something that is continually celebrated as the people gather for worship. So you get to Psalm 135, and you get down to about uh, verse 10, talking about God's greatness. Psalm 135, verse 10, he struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people Israel. You go over to Psalm 136, down in verse uh, 136, verse 17. To him who struck down great kings, his steadfast love endures forever. And killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage, for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. Maybe a lesson uh, for us is that 
this type of worship reminds us that we would do well to probably be more specific in our praise to God and our thanks to God. Uh, we're, we're tempted to say, thank you, God, for your many blessings. <laughs> and then we go back to that old hymn about count your many blessings, name them one by one. Uh, that is probably a better model, at least scripturally, than God, thanks for all the good things you did. Well, I mean, yeah, that's true. But what you see played out in Joshua and what you see played out in the book of Psalms is, but God, thank you for this in particular because I know that came for your hand. And God, I remember this in particular. One of the ways we're trying, I'm trying to live this out and imperfectly for sure, but when I pray with Emery um, at bedtime, her request for prayer at bedtime is not spiritual. It's purely delay of sleep. Um, but she knows that if she asks for a prayer at bedtime, it adds a little bit more time before she has to, uh, to go to sleep. So don't give any theological credit there. But uh, when, when we pray, one of the things I've tried to do is I realized that when I was praying with her, it was so generic. And, and you guys know little kids, they don't do well with generic language. They need concrete. They need to be able to see it, touch it. So what we do now is when we pray together at night, essentially it's one long review of the day uh, given in a form of prayer to, to the Lord. And so part of the reason I'm doing that is just to force myself not to be so abstract in general when I pray with her. Part of it, though, is to train her in this idea of when we give thanks to God for what happened during our day, let's actually mention what, what happened during our day. So the big kid lesson from that is if we're not careful at bedtime when we look back over the day, it's God, thanks for a good day, you were really faithful, all of which is perfectly true, but do we actually take time to review that? You know, um, lists like this can feel very tedious, uh, but what feels tedious can actually be really great thanksgiving uh, given to the Lord. And so uh, Davis, Dale Davis, who's written a pretty nice commentary on, on Joshua, he said, it is as faith gives thanks in detail that our faith is nurtured, encouraged, and takes on fresh heart to expect more mercies. Um, and then a commentator named Ellison says, It would be unfair to suggest that the church is unwilling to thank God for all his many mercies, but on the whole, it is unwilling to indulge in detailed and specific thanks. If we were to train ourselves to recognize God's goodness act by act and detail by detail, many of us would come to think more highly both of God and of the church. Much of our despondency comes from failing to see, how, see what God has really achieved for his people. Uh, so there's, there's a lesson here about when we think about what God is doing, let's, let's be specific about that. A, a final point on that section is just remembering that all of God's victories here that are rehearsed in Joshua 12, they anticipate his final victory for his people. So we talked about this when we studied Joshua, but the victories we see God giving his people here are the anticipation of the final victory. Judges 5.31 is a verse that says, So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. You're getting to a point in Judges where they're starting to realize there were a lot more enemies to fight than they realized. <laughs> Every time they took another step forward, they're like, oh my goodness, there's another, another challenge to face. There's another enemy. And so there's this declaration to the Lord, Lord, I don't know how many enemies we're going to face, but may all your enemies perish. Fast forward to 1 Corinthians 15, and there's a reference where it says there, 
the end will come when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Yeah, death is the last enemy, and Christ destroyed death in the victory over the cross and through the resurrection. And so what's anticipated in the book of Joshua is fulfilled in the defeat of death through Christ. Revelation eleven fifteen is just another celebration of that, that ultimately Christ will destroy all death. And so it's a, it's a picture of that. Um, let's look just for a second. I think we have a couple, of, yeah, just a couple of minutes left. Go back just for a moment to Joshua 13. We'll, we'll hit these last couple of points and then we'll pick back up next week. Joshua 13. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years. You think I'm kidding, but that's actually the core text for next week. Um, take, it, take it as you will, but we're going to talk about old age next week. Uh, invite your friends and your neighbors and come next Wednesday night to Emmaus as we talk about old age. Um, that's a teaser, but it really is the topic. Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, <laughs> and there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains, all the regions of the Philistines and all those of the Geshurites, from the Shihor, which is east of Egypt, northward to the boundary of Ekron. It's counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Goth, and Ekron, those of the Avaim in the south, all the land of the Canaanites, and Mira that belongs to the Sidonians, to Aphek, to the boundary of the Amorites, and the land of the Gebelites, and all Lebanon, toward the sunrise, from Baal God below Mount Hermon to Lebo Hamath, all the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon to Mishrafath Maim, even all the Sidonians. I myself, at the end of verse 6, I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance as I have commanded you. Now therefore divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. What Joshua 13 begins to get us a picture of is in light of God's faithfulness that we've talked about, what is our response to that? How do we respond in faithfulness and obedience? The first thing is our faithfulness Every day. This is the idea of continual obedience. What you see reflected here is another realization that there's still a lot of work to be done. <laughs> Joshua has brought the people to this point, and it would be easy just to say, ha, we've made it. And God says, no, everyday obedience. You come to this point, and, and you keep going. Dale Davis has a good quote there on your notes. We frequently and strangely prove faithful in the great crisis of faith, remain steadfast in severe storms, perhaps even relish the excitement of the heaviest assaults, yet we lack the tenacity, the dogged endurance, the patient plotting often required in the prosaic affairs of believing life. We are often loath to be faithful in the little things. You know, isn't how that how life works? When something is so intense in front of you, if you're especially if you've got a little bit of a competitive streak, you just find yourself particularly focused. Like, I am going to hold on to the Lord. I'm going to get through this. It's when you get through that situation and you go back to regular life that you're most often tripped up. Um, so you go through a crisis. You're praying. You're reading scripture. You're holding on to the Lord. Crisis passed. You begin to move on. Less Bible reading. Less urgent prayer. 
less holding on to the Lord. And that in particular is when Satan so often steps in and trips us up, not in the great crisis of life, but just in Tuesday. Um, like trying to go to work, trying to care for your family, trying to pay the, those type of things are what, what so often trip us up. Um, and so I think that's a, that's a really important reminder right there. Now look really quickly before we wrap up down at verse 13. The people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Machathites, but Geshur and Machath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. That's going to be a problem for the people of Israel all the way through. They don't go to complete obedience. They obey up to a point. And all these people that they fail to drive out become a, you know, a thorn in their side. So how do, we, how do we remain faithful to the Lord? How do we obey? Every day and in everything. Everything that we are called to. Uh, the people are being called to possess real estate. <laughs> you have to live in the everyday. It's not any good to say, I believe in the Lord and not do what he's called us to do in the everyday aspect of living life. This is why the incarnation, Jesus taking on flesh, is so important. It shows us that God is not a God that exists out there as an idea somewhere. He's a God who comes into the everyday world that, that we face. This is why the concept of the body of Christ is so important. Because we are called to live out in everyday life what it means to be a follower of Jesus so people can see God's love on, on display. So every day, in every area of life, God calls us uh, to faithfulness. There's a book that came out recently uh, by a lady named Tish Warren that is called The Liturgy of the Ordinary, which I think is a good, a good concept because how do you experience God's faithfulness when you're going through what seems like just a regular, ordinary day. Um, yeah, great emotional highs are, are fantastic. Gathering for worship is fantastic. But that's only a small picture of what it means to really experience the Lord and, and follow Him. And so uh, I, I like what Craig Rochelle at Life Church says about this. He says, We live toward the 167. What he means by that is there's 168 hours in a week. And if we're not careful, we can find our Christianity to one of those hours. But if we're really experiencing God's work in our life, that one hour drives the other 167 hours. And so one of the things we want to do well as pastoral leadership and as a church is to say, how does our gathering together guide people in those other 167 hours of their week? How do we live and lead and move toward that 167? Because what kind of faithfulness does God call us to? Everyday faithfulness in every area of life. How can we ever do that? Because he's defeated the enemies and he is perfectly faithful. So let's pray together. Father, thank you uh, for these friends who have gathered here to worship together, to love on one another, eat together, sing together, pray together. Uh, look at all these uh, hard names together. But in these names, we see a picture of your faithfulness to us, that you never leave us, you never forsake us, that you are sovereign, that you provide for your people, you guide your people. We can trust you. God, let us be specific with our praise. When we think back on our day so we're getting ready for bed in, in just a little bit. God, let us be specific with our thanks and our praise. Let us never forget all the things you've done for us.
because we know that we can trust you in the future. And God, I pray that we'll be faithful in everything we face every day, even in things that seem particularly small. God, that we will continue to trust and obey you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.